Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Hello there. Hello, General Kenobi. <laughs> Um, and also joining us in the cupboard uh, this week uh, is Professor Andrew Pask from Melbourne University, who is our interview guest. Andrew, say hi. Hello. I didn't realise we were in a cupboard. Oh, it's <laughs> it's a very expansive cupboard. We get, <laughs> Good. We get everything in here. <laughs> a little bit like a, a little bit like the TARDIS, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, you you're here to tell us. Uh, all things thylacine and and um, uh, the work that you're carrying out at the moment, which could possibly see a very different future for the thylacine. Um, well, we'll start off. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your background? Yeah, so uh, I'm a developmental biologist and reproductive biologist. Um, I work on marsupials, obviously. Uh, I really love marsupial mammals. I think they're they're super fascinating uh, and obviously something very unique to Australia. So I became obsessed with them as a little kid. I actually grew up in the UK and we moved to Australia when I was 10 and I just became completely obsessed with marsupials and started reading books and stuff on them. You can see, you know, like possums in the tree and kangaroos, you know, just in the paddocks next to where we were living when we moved here. And wow. uh, yeah, so looking looking up books on on thylac on on marsupials, and then that's when I found the thylacine, which is the coolest of all of the marsupials. So I became completely obsessed with it. Uh, did a genetics degree, and then decided I wanted to do anything I could with uh, the Tasmanian tiger or the thylacine. And uh, yeah, here we are today. I have a lab that's now working to try and bring them back from extinction. Wow, I mean. <laughs> you, you, the way you just said that, the fact you've cut, uh, started out in, in the UK and, and moved to uh, Australia, that pretty much mirrors what happened to me. I uh, had the same thing, moved out to Australia when I was nine years old and, and uh, well, was there until 2003 and then came back to the UK. I was also obsessed with marsupials when I initially yeah. went out there. So um, it's <laughs> maybe it is just a fascination that everyone has to get when they when they initially moved to Australia, I think. Well, they're very deserving of, of the fascination. Definitely. I've, I've never even stepped foot in Australia, but I've been very lucky to work with uh, grey kangaroos, long-nosed potteroos, uh, oh, yeah. wallabies, palmer wallabies, which I think are endangered. Um, and also I've got to be a little bit hands-on with koalas. So uh, there, there is something about marsupials. Mm. but just can't be beaten really and that's coming from a carnivore person so (laughs) (laughs) so can you explain to us what the thylacine integrated genomic restoration research or aka tiger is uh what that is and how it came about took me ages to come about with that acronym i can tell you i was there for hours (laughs) going it's got to spell tiger (laughs) 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 but um yes basically the, the, the mission of the lab is to try and bring back the Tasmanian tiger and to explore all of those technologies for de-extinction science. So really trying to understand, you know, what we can do within this space and how we can start to reverse some of these massive biodiversity losses that we've seen across the globe. And so our poster child for this is obviously the Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine. 
But um, all of the technologies that we develop as part of this have immediate conservation benefits for marsupials, you know, right now that we can deploy. So they're all technologies that are absolutely desperately needed to achieve this, but also will hopefully one day see the Tasmanian tiger also brought back. And it opens up then the possibilities of other species that we may want to bring back. Uh, like I said, because we, we're facing this, this, you know, sixth mass extinction in the world where we're losing mm. species rate that we have never, ever seen before. Yeah. And despite the fact that we, you know, we all understand that what's going on and that, you know, eventually you hit a part on that curve where you're losing too many species and whole ecosystems collapse. We're still not stopping it. We're still not reversing that or, you know, have any way of putting the brakes on. And so I think the extinction science is going to be a really important part of conservation biology moving forward, where you can actually now dip into the past for, you know, animals that we lost tragically that we shouldn't have, and then bring those animals back into ecosystems, particularly ones that are really, really important within those ecosystems. Mm. Mm. I mean, you you pretty much answered my next question in in sort of a roundabout way, but um, why the thylacine over other extinct Australian fauna like some of the um, the the different kinds of bandicoot and things like that that have have long since been wiped out? Phylacaleo. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great one. <laughs> I mean, I think we can all agree that the the Tassie tiger was the like the the coolest. Yeah. Of all mm. the marsupials. So right off the bat, like it's the one that you're like, it looks like, you know, it's got stripes like a tiger. It's like, it looks like a wolf. Yeah. It had a pouch, it had joeys in it, you know, like it's completely mind blowing. But the most important thing about the Tassie tiger is I think it really ticks all of the boxes for an animal that you would want to do the extinction for. It's a bloody expensive process and it takes a really long time. You know, this is a really, really big job. And you would not be doing the extinction for just any old species that you think, oh, that would be cool to bring back. It's got to have yeah. a really good reason. And it's got to tick all of those sort of ethical boxes that you want for it. So the first thing with the Tassie tiger is brutally hunted to extinction by man. Mm. So when European settlers moved into Tasmania, and this was around, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, they decided that the Tassie tiger was uh, eating all of their sheep. So they actually put a bounty on their head and went out and just completely exterminated the Tasmanian tiger. Mm. And there was a one pound bounty around that time, which was a lot of money. It was actually more lucrative for farmers to become bounty hunters for, for the thylacine than to actually farm sheep. Wow. So it was a very aggressive eradication. And the next thing is they played a really important role in the ecosystem. So they were an apex predator, those animals that sit right at the top of the food chain. Mm. <clears throat> but the weird thing about Australia is we don't have any apex predators. So if you think about, I know, North America, other countries, I'm sure you had them in the UK at one time, but you exterminated them all. But there were Unfortunately, wolves. yeah. Yeah, very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> but there were, you know, you've got like wolves, bears, there's big cats, there's like all sorts of apex predators that those landscapes have. In Australia, we don't have any. The Tasmanian tiger was the only large predatory mammal that lived into modern times that lived into mm. sort of more recent eras and so those animals we know are absolutely critical in helping maintain ecosystems and so when the thylacine was hunted to extinction there was no other animal in that landscape that could take its place or fulfill that same niche that same role that it had in that ecosystem so it left a massive gap and we have seen a huge destabilization of the ecosystem as a result of of, of its loss 
The other thing is Tasmania is relatively untouched. So that's a place where it comes from. And it went extinct about 87 years ago, 88 years ago. So there is a place to put that animal back. So if we recreate the thylacine tomorrow, you know, there's enough of an ecosystem, enough of the food web still intact in that place that you can put the animal back there. And right. then the final thing is you've got to be able to actually get DNA from your animal. And mm. so fortunately, because these were beautiful, iconic species, museum collections all around the world wanted Tasmanian tigers in their collections. So there's a great repository of genetic material that we can access to sequence their entire DNA code, so get that full genome, but also to understand things like what the population diversity was like, you know, how much variation there was in that population. We can do really good uh, sort of snapshot of what that, that species looked like before they went extinct. So I think for all of those re reasons, that's why the thylacine is probably, I would argue, the best candidate of any species that's been proposed for the extinction. I was, <laughs> yeah, no, I think... <laughs> Excellent. I think you're right. But it's funny that you say that you're sold, Gareth, because I don't know if you remember, uh, and possibly our long-term listeners might not even remember, but we did, actually, Gareth did a very good piece for our creature feature uh, one week on the thylacine. And I remember specifically saying, because up until that point, I was actually I was actually against, I, 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 to be fair, I was against cloning in, in many, many aspects. Not for any uh you know like i'm not i'm not religious or spiritual so it's it's nothing to do with that it was just to do with um and we'll come on to this later on in the interview i think uh it was to do with like the importance of extinction as a something of a deadline for the public to wrap their heads around to to kind of call them to action however yeah. gareth's passion through that phylocene episode is actually what led me to your work uh andrew <laughs> And yeah. it was through reading your work that, like, so it it was Gareth's passion and and the work that you've done and 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 reading up on it and stuff. And the more I read up on it, I was uh, I completely did a one eighty on on this. And and I I I do agree. Like the phylocene of all the species, and I include I I include some of the the lost tiger species because I'm a big tiger fanatic. Um, yeah, I actually include some of the tiger subspecies like you know your balinese and, and your javan tigers it, it, caspian tigers yeah. i actually include that in that list the, the phylocene comes out on top of all of them i think um yeah. i think it's a, a great candidate not just a great candidate but a great ambassador for for what de-extinction could be and what it could be used for yeah um but you could definitely and tell how passionate you are about phylocene <laughs> I agree. Like this is not something you, we should be doing, you know, willy nilly for any mm. old species. Of this. You know, yeah. this is this has got to be something that you've got to have a really, really good ecological reason for wanting to go down this path. Mm. Um, but but the technology that we we're developing to do this will transform the way that we think about extinctions, and you can then bring back subspecies. I mean, those things are a lot easier, right? Because their living relatives are so much closer that the whole process is a lot simpler, it's easy to find surrogates, all of those things that make that really, really possible. And it also opens up the possibility of, of mining museum collections where we've got these incredible repositories of these incredible animals that have been, you know, collected for hundreds yeah. of years that are there with great information about them, that today, even where we may have a surviving population, but it's lost so much genetic diversity and, you know, there's only 20 animals left, this technology will enable us to go back into those collections, 
look at what that that diversity used to look like in that population and then re-engineer that back in so we can really help these animals bounce back from these, you know, really difficult places that we put them where they're unable to, you know, adapt to different situations now. We can really give those animals a leg up and, and really help bring those species back from the brink. Yeah, some when you when you talk mm. about that, some of the um some of the Asiatic rhino well, actually some some of the African the white rhino comes to mind too, actually. Uh yeah. yeah. Um it is fantastic fantastic the scope of it is fantastic. I'm, I'm sure we'll get onto that in a bit. Um would you mind explaining the process? Because cloning a living specimen is one thing, but how yeah. exactly does cloning an extinct animal work i'm, yeah, so I'm this... assuming it's nothing like jurassic park <laughs> yeah you it's must get it. sick of the jurassic park um uh, i'll look i love jurassic park <laughs> i love we, jurassic park we love it too but we can't imagine yeah. that, like having to come like being treated like a bit of a you know like john hammond like lo lovely yeah. bloke but like some like yeah. you know i'm sure there's people in the science world that think of john hammond as a bit of a a bit of a uh, a cra crazy dude, but... Yeah, we always get the quote, you know, you were so busy thinking whether you could, they never stop <laughs> oh, to think yeah, whether yeah. they should. Like, that's the one that brings <laughs> up. And I'm like, all I do is think about the should, right? <laughs> like, that's my entire career. It's just the should bit. So I'm like, it's the complete opposite of that. <laughs> that's what science is. It's just going, should we do it? Because the can... We've been able to do this for ages. So there's no magic involved in de-extinction science. There's nothing new that had to be invented. This is just basically creating a genetically modified animal. It's mm. just a, a GMO, a genetically modified organism, at a scale that's never been done before. So it's expensive, but that's really it. It's just a really time-consuming, expensive thing. But we call it de-extinction science as opposed to cloning because it is different. So cloning, you need to have a living cell. Obviously, we don't have a living cell with, with extinct species, but we still can't create life where there is none. So we can't magically, you know, reanimate thylacine corpses, although that would make my job a lot easier. Um, <laughs> so we have to start with life. So the way that de-extinction science works is you find the closest living relative to the animal that's gone extinct, and then you grow cells from that, and that will be your base to recreate your thylacine. So for us, that's a small uh, mouse-sized marsupial called a fat-tailed dunner. So they're, they're oh, about a little, bit, a little bit smaller than a mouse. Yeah, they are cute, very cute little animals. <laughs> uh, and, and though they're the closest living relatives, so we grow cells from them. We sequence their entire DNA code. We've already got that for the thylacine. You compare the two, and then you figure out everywhere that they're different. And right. like, you know, most species, they're very closely related. They're like 98% the same. <clears throat> it is a uh, 3 billion base pair genome, though, so that 2% is a lot. <laughs> like That is a lot of edits. But basically, then all you have to do is go in and make that 2% change. And then you're turning your Dunnard cell into a thylacine cell. And then once you've got that thylacine cell, then you can use the cloning technologies to either take that nucleus and put it into a, an early embryo, like a, a, an egg that's had the nucleus pulled out of it, um, and then you can transfer that into a surrogate or you can grow the embryos. Um, and then from there, you can get to the, the live animal part. So that second part is sort of using standard cloning techniques, although we don't have any of that technology yet for marsupials. So we're developing that. And that has lots of implications for uh, captive breeding programs and for really bringing species back from the brink of extinction, um, as well as, you know, obviously doing all the DNA editing. 
that's the bit that's going to take a long time. So that's the bit where we have to create that 2% editing. And that will be, you know, I, I would think at least a 10-year uh, timeline for making all of those edits. But that's basically how it works. So Jurassic Park was not that off the mark. Like when Mr. DNA comes along, you know, and he talks about <laughs> filling in the gaps in the DNA code, <clears throat> we, we're doing this comparison and then we're editing that that difference. But it's it's not that different from from that you know initial one you would never why would you use a frog right yeah that was that always the, uh, so the strange and the dinosaur like you'd use a bird like really exactly. it's <laughs> and, and especially there's there's actual um there's people actually looking at how you how you switch on and off certain genes to create certain uh phylogenetic traits in in yeah. birds to make them resemble the non-avian theropods that they're related to. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, Mr. DNA, you said that, it made me giggle. <laughs> Bingo, phylocene <Yeah>. DNA. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah. you, you, you mentioned about using a surrogate species and obviously using something like a fat-tailed dunnart as your, your starting block and then editing yeah. that until you get to a thylacine uh genome and and then eventually a, a, a phylocene thetas if you'd ever get to the point of obviously having a living joey of of a thylacine obviously a, a dunnart is going to be way too small for pouch holding would you yeah. be using a surrogate species for like incubating this or would it be done in the, almost the same vein as you get a lot of wildlife rescuers do where they they have an artificial pouch and rear it artificially yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it would, <clears throat> at least the first year would definitely be reared in an artificial pouch. We've done lots of uh, moving wallabies around different kangaroo pouches. <laughs> they used they used to do that with the brush-tailed rock wallaby and the yellowfoot rock yeah. wallaby at Adelaide Zoo. Yeah. Yes. So, and it was a really effective way, right, because then that mm. animal can go off and have more babies, right? So, But they're... Marsupials are incredibly, I'm not sure if they're incredibly tolerant or just incredibly uh, dumb. I don't want to be offensive <laughs> to marsupials, but they really don't seem to care when you switch an animal out in their pouch. Like they just kind of go, mm, whatever. And, uh, you know, they, they'll just leave that little little joey in there to, to, to grow up. But there are companies that make the milk for hand rearing marsupials of all different kinds. So obviously the thylacine was a carnivorous marsupial. So there's milk out there that you can use to hand rear Tasmanian devils and other carnivorous marsupials. So at that point, you know, doing the hand rearing would actually be relatively simple. And it's something that's done all the time, like you mentioned before, for orphaned animals. So we have a very good techniques for, for doing that. And yeah, you know, I think it blows people's mind a lot when I say that the little mouse sized done up would be the surrogate mum for the for the baby, because they're always going, how on earth does that work? But this is part <laughs> of the miracle of marsupials is their yeah. babies associated with birth, that even the tiny little mouse sized done up can give birth to a Labrador-sized thylacine because at birth, they're the size of a grain of rice and not even a big grain of rice. They're about arboreo grain of rice. Like you're not your long grain in Basmati. We're talking the little short grain is about the size of a dunnart when they're born and and the same as a thylacine. They're all around that size. So we could probably leave. We, we actually collected a whole heap of thylacine pouch young that are in museum collections did all the morphometric measurements of all their bones and stuff and, and you know, actually created a timeline for their growth trajectory wow. within the pouch. So we reckon they could live for about two weeks in a Dunnart pouch before we would have to take it out because obviously the mum wouldn't be able to provide enough milk for it. But they would get that very <laughs> early critical pouch. There's something we call pouch jam 
There's like uh, just this really gross goo that's in the pouch that we think is really <laughs> important for establishing the gut flora and a yeah. lot of other parts of their digestive system. So they would get a lot of that. These tiny little mouse-sized uh, marsupials, the dunnarts, are also carnivores, so they eat meat. Um, so they have very similar sort of, you know, layouts in their gut and stuff as well, which is really handy. And then from then on, we would probably hand rear it. From about the size of a jelly bean on, we can hand rear it. Hmm. That would that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Hand rear yeah. one of those. Um, I did I did uh, hear you talk about in an interview once that um that the sorry this isn't this isn't one of the questions. It's just jumping off on what you were saying. I heard you say in an interview once about how the brain of a phylocene is actually in terms of the you know your your standard brain size to body size um proportions that yeah the the phylocenes are actually bigger than a lot of other marsupial brains so i imagine they'd be they'd be very trainable yeah i mean that's one of the really interesting things is there's no domesticatable marsupials so you know even ones that have been hand read they they don't make good pets you know they, no. they don't really retain that bond with humans once they go through puberty, they kind of reset their brain and just want to go off and do their own thing, mm. uh, which is great when you're rewilding something. But, yeah, yeah. the thylacine was really different in that it had a much, much larger brain than any of the other marsupial species that are existing today. And that's probably because it was an apex predator. So those mm. animals have to make very complex decisions. It's a much more complicated and calculated lifestyle than being a prey species. It just kind of has to sit there and eat grass. I guess when you are a, a predator, you have to make decisions about hunting, chasing, how to take an animal down, you know, how you're going to corner yeah. it, all of those sorts of things. And it also suggests that they may have had social behaviour, that they were able to interact together, perhaps pack hunt and things because of this large brain size. But there's also anecdotal stories. There's not much information about thylacines. You know, there was very little documented about them before they were completely exterminated. But of the anecdotal stories that have kind of been passed down and told from people to people, there is sort of, you know, a few out there that people had them as companion animals, that they might actually be wow. an animal that could be trained and, you know, <laughs> would form a bond with people or at least understand if you were giving it food every day, it can hang around, you know, <laughs> it's an wow. easy lifestyle. <laughs> so that would be something amazing to to find out. Yeah. Um, so you, because we're talking about surrogate um surrogate mothers and, and such are you concerned at all about fetal rejection within those first crucial two weeks and if so how will you overcome uh the challenge that that presents yeah so uh, there's there's two bits to this so um the in utero development so when it's actually growing as a fetus we know that when we do surrogates in big placental mammals so if you try and grow you know like a zebra inside a horse mm. womb there is often immunorejection. So the mum will detect the, the fetus as being <clears throat> something foreign and yep. then reject that. Yeah, this doesn't happen in marsupials. So they have a really, really short gestation. So for most of these uh, desiurid marsupials, so that's what the dunart is and the thylacine, mm. their gestation is about uh, 13 days. So wow. the shortest gestation of any mammal, actually, super, super short. And they don't actually develop uh, invasive placenta. So they do have some placental tissues that kind of touch the, the womb of the mum, but they don't invade the womb of the mother the same way that our, our placentas do. <clears throat> and that's because marsupials have, you know, really tiny babies. They don't need that really invasive placentation. So that is a massive advantage for us because they don't have any recognition of the pregnancy 
And so then they won't have to go through that same sort of rejection process that you might see in other species. So that bit should be totally fine. In the pouch, mums can sometimes chuck the babies out. And so that would be something that we would have to monitor, but we could actually, you know, like actually watch and monitor it. Mm. And we don't need them to go into the pouch, although it would be better, I think, for that animal's health to right. have gone through this yeah. pouch. But if it's necessary to, you know, take that baby even at birth and then to just administer the milk, then that's something that can be easily done, even from that really, really tiny stage. But much, much better to do it in the pouch. And that animal would be more healthy. And ultimately, you know, we want to breed those animals up. This would only be for the first few thylacines that you create, right? This is not going to be for all of them. Mm. Once you've got the thylacine, it would be able to breed and then give birth to its own animals that could complete development in a normal thylacine womb and then in a normal thylacine pouch. So this is only the first few that you would create in this way and might have to be hand-reared and might not be as healthy as a, as a natural thylacine. And then after that, you would let them do their own thing. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the, the marsupials are incredible animals, really, aren't they? They're re reproductive. Yeah, yeah, really amazing. amazing. It's yeah. it's so um it's so foreign to to what what we think about um when we consider animals and their reproductive processes. Yeah. Really incredible species. Mm. Right. Um so can you tell us, uh, Andrew, how uh, colossal biosciences fits into this picture and um, and how does the partnership you've got going with them work? Yeah, so um, I've been working on this project for a long time. I used to call it, it was my side hustle project that I had going in the lab. So it was really hard <laughs> to get significant funding to bring back a, a, a thylacine. Uh, and for good reason, right? Like, I think if I was, you know, pitching this to some of the big, uh, more standard funding places, it would have been a hard sell. It's a really mm. big job. So I think if anybody's going to invest in doing this, you need some serious money behind it. You can't do this with, you know, a sort of standard grant size amount of money. And my motivation behind doing it, what I was trying to propose was this, you know, next level of uh, conservation tools that we need for marsupials anyway, that underpin the efforts to bring back the Tasmanian tiger, which in itself is a conservation effort because putting that animal back in the landscape helps balance everything out. So anyway, I'd spoken about it lots. I'd done lots of podcasts. Um, I'd done uh, lots of, you know, media in Australia in particular around the importance of thinking about these technologies and really going, this is something we, we need to be serious about and that we have to consider de-extinction technology if we want to save our planet. It's the only way that we're going to restore some of these biodiversity losses. So anyway, it was COVID lockdown. Uh, you know, we were feeling lonely and we were isolated in Melbourne for, for many, many hundreds of days in our houses. <laughs> and I, I got a random email um, from somebody who just said, hey, I've, I've heard about your work on the Tasmanian tiger. I really love the thylacine. I'm really passionate about it. Could we just have a Zoom chat? So um, I did. I just said, like, sure. I probably wouldn't have if I wasn't at home lockdown lonely. Um, but I was like, okay, we'll have a chat. <laughs> So um, we we just we just got chatting. He was asking a ton of questions, you know, really deeply interested in marsupials conservation, the thylacine in particular, and just kept on asking why I hadn't done this, why I hadn't said, you know, come out and you know said I'm doing the tiger lab, yeah. I'm going to bring the animal back and propose it. And I said that you know there was this real issue with um, needing to have some serious financial support to actually do all of the work that was necessary. Anyway, it turns out he was a, a philanthropist who was really uh, looking to invest in, in, you know, doing something good for the planet 
And so after that conversation, he said, I will make a really big donation so that you can actually establish the Tiger Lab and, you know, really go out and do it. So I did that. We had a massive announcement uh, about setting up the Tiger Lab and it just went viral all around the world. Everybody was talking about bringing back the Tasmanian Tiger. And at that time, Colossal was just getting themselves set up in the United States and their flagship de-extinction project was the Woolly Mammoth. Mm. And so... I got contacted by the CEO from Colossal just to say, hey, it seems like we're working on similar projects, different species, but it would be great just to have a talk about, you know, how are you going about this? What's your strategy? Because it's a big, big job, right? And mm. so uh, they flew me over to Dallas, which is where the, the main Colossal operation is. And uh, we spent, you know, three days just talking all about the science of how you actually do this. And the thing that was great is it was just really complementary, the way that we were approaching the problem and the way that they were approaching it for the mammoth. They're quite different. Mammoth is very closely related to, to the Asian elephant. In fact, more closely related to Asian elephant than the African elephant is to the Asian elephant, which That's always right, blows yeah. my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so they have much less DNA editing to do. So they're easy. They're a bit DNA editing light but then they're, they're very gestation heavy. So this animal has a 22-month gestation, like a one-ton yeah. baby, right? So that bit is really hard. And then we're on the opposite. So the Dunnart and the thylacine are not super closely related. They're still very closely related, 98% the same, but that's a significant bigger difference than you see between a mammoth and an Asian elephant. So we have, mm. we're have we very DNA editing heavy, but then we're very gestation-like. The actual getting the baby to get through to that point of birth and then rearing it, is a very simple job for us, very complicated for a mammoth. So what this meant was we'd worked very hard on the back end of trying to figure out how we get through all the gestation stuff. They'd worked very hard on the front end about how do we get all the, you know, at scale doing DNA mapping and mutation analysis and that kind of stuff. And so it just worked really well together. And so they said, we would also love to come on board and work on the, the Tasmanian Tiger project with you and really help increase the resources that we have in my lab to develop a lot of the tools that they can use for the biology process. And then they really are doing the lion's share of the DNA editing side of things. So we will feed in all of the things that need to be edited. And then they are really the world leaders, I would say at the moment, in doing the DNA editing on the scale and the mass that we need to do our de-extinction project. So it's just been a really fantastic collaboration between us both where uh, we're really complementary in everything we're developing. And we're just, all of us are super passionate about the need to bring species back. Amazing. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty damn cool. Yeah. Um, For a project I could never get funded. Yeah. It's really, <laughs> yeah. really massive change. It's either that or robbing banks, I suppose. Right. But now it's like a massive focus of the lab now, obviously, is is all of the super conservation and thylacine de-extinction work. So it's really, it's fantastic. And have you had any others, um, any others uh, private financial donors uh, helping you guys out? Yeah, so Colossal has a you know a whole crew of uh, big philanthropists from the United States that have given money to Colossal that then comes through for for our projects. Brilliant. People like Leonardo DiCaprio, for example, his favorite animal is the thylacine, which is oh, really? amazing. Wow, yeah, mate, he's got good he, taste. He does, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does a lot. He he does a lot. I have a lot of respect for what he tries to do. Mm. Uh, with yeah, with huge wealth. amount of conservation work. You know, really amazing. Um, but yeah, like, you know, we 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 have a donate button on the, the thylacine webpage and tons mm -hmm. of people uh, just give little bits of money, which is amazing. Like we put that all towards 
PhD student projects um, so that they can explore various aspects of of work that's you know on the either the thylacine or directly related to marsupial conservation. So it's been just uh, amazing, really amazing yeah. the support. And I think people, you know, generally really love the idea of of bringing this animal back. I think we feel a great sense of guilt for hunting this animal to extinction before we really understood just how important these animals were in the landscape. Yeah. And I think the the thought that we could undo some of those things is is amazing. Well, mm. that is one thing that uh, Australia's recognition of of the importance of phylacines in the ecosystem is roughly about uh, the distance between Earth and the Sun uh, when compared to uh, Britain's uh, Britain's recognition of yeah. where wolves are should be in the ecosystem. Yeah. We are light years yeah. behind you in that in that sense because uh, you mentioned earlier on like the the damage done by taking the phylacine out of that ecosystem and it's very much the same over here uh with with wolves yeah. but but you'll never get you'll never get the british public to uh to admit to yeah. it. and you certainly wouldn't get the british politicians to uh to even entertain the idea that a wolf might be a good idea yeah i mean for that you know it's incredible when you look at the work they did in yellowstone with the rewilding yes. of the yeah yeah and how it completely changed the landscape like wild flowers bloomed that hadn't for 50 years in the valley mm. The river changed its course through uh, that Yellowstone Valley, all as a result of putting an apex predator back into that landscape. So they impact things at a profound level that we wouldn't, even as ecologists, can predict exactly the, the magnitude of those changes. But it's through, mm. you know, keeping down the smaller animals like the rabbits that suddenly flowers can bloom for the first time in, you know, decades because they're not being eaten as tiny little shoots before they get a chance to actually That's grow. That's right, yeah. You know, it changes yeah. beaver population. So then rivers change their courses through valleys and it actually retook the original course it used to have through the valley, which had completely changed because the beaver population had boomed. So it was just, it's it's astounding the importance that these animals have. And just, you know, you can see from just that one example, just how critical it is to have those animals back in those landscapes. These are, yeah. these, these are species that don't just affect population numbers of everything else in the, in the, the trophic cascade. They actually affect yeah. the behavior and where these animals yeah. go and if they frequent it or if they keep moving and stuff like that, it has, yeah, yeah. It, it has a, yeah, a deeply profound effect on the landscape. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, that's one animal that is actually, thankfully, on the increase is beavers in the UK. So yeah. there's one thing going in the right direction. But I yeah. think, yeah, wolves will never get to the stage of probably having wolves roaming right. the UK. Um, but uh, so as a factor in your success with the thylacine genome, uh, like mapping it, and then you've been um, looking at, at taking preserved specimens from museums. So you've you found a, a joey that had been preserved in ethanol as opposed to formalin, uh, yeah. which had basically extended the life of the genetic quality. Um, yeah. uh, do you know, um, is, is specimen preservation, has it changed? Uh, is it, um, sorry, I'm reading my bit here. Change a bit of, yeah. Has it changed to better accommodate uh, protection and avoid genetic uh, breakdown in, in museum specimens? Obviously, you've only got a limited number of of thylacine specimens to to even work with. But is yeah. is that the only one really that's in that state that was in ethanol as opposed to formalin? 
Yeah, we've probably looked at about, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 uh, thylacine specimens now. And that was the only one that had that really intact DNA. Wow. So the other specimens, cool. mostly when things came into museum collections around 100 years ago, they were formal and fixed or mm. the, the skin was tanned. So they were treated with all sorts of, you know, horrendous chemicals, arsenic and other things mm. to preserve the the, the specimen itself. Um, and so that's not great for DNA. But this one, I don't know whether they'd run out of formalin or uh, they just had a batch of gin come off the still or something and they didn't know what to do with this thylacine pup. But for whatever reason, they dropped it into just pure alcohol. And that just meant that the DNA was a bit better preserved. So the fragments were longer. So mm. in the normal specimens, most of the DNA is maybe 50 base pairs long or 50 letters of code long. Um, and if you've got a, you know, 3 billion base pair genome, it, it's it's really hard to put that, those puzzle pieces back together again. Really challenging and super difficult, especially because half of our genome in any mammal is made up of repeat sequences. So that same bit of sequence over and over and over again. And so it's like doing a puzzle where over half the puzzle pieces are just blue sky and you've got to try and put all those blue sky pieces back together again. So enormously challenging. The bigger the puzzle pieces, obviously the much easier it is to do the puzzle. And mm. so with that, with that pup that just happened to be preserved in ethanol, the fragments were it were much larger, significantly larger, about a thousand letters long. And so that let us put the puzzle back together and do a really, really good genome. So not just like a, a decent genome, which most of the extinct animals have sort of a decent genome. This let us do like a, a, a really good genome, a really solid genome that you could go. Now we've got the base to actually to bring this animal back. We found a couple of other specimens in alcohol that are, are pretty good too, not as good as this one. And so uh, once you've got that really good genome, then you've got your picture on the box. Then you know exactly what your puzzle needs to look like. So now you can go back and sequence the other specimens, even though the DNA is more rubbish in those. But because you know where all the pieces of the puzzle go, it's much easier now you've got that picture on the box to just rebuild those genomes, even from the poor specimens. So that means once we've got that really good genome, all those other specimens now become really useful because we can actually do a proper genome build from them um, and have a look at the population diversity. We can have a look at how different or similar their genomes are. Right. And so that really opened up a whole whole new era for us in, in being able to access a lot of different animal genomes. So that's where we're at at the moment. It's trying to sequence about 50 thylacine genomes to completion. Wow. Uh, just a, a follow-on from that. I don't know why, but maybe it's stuck in my head because mm. it's where where I used to live. But I vaguely remember someone saying that the Adelaide Museum specimens of thylacines were also somewhere that fitted into the puzzle of of having some good bits of DNA. I can't remember if they were. I can remember what they looked like. There was yeah. two of them. There was yeah. a, a an adult and a joey. Yeah, that used to be in like their hall of mammals. Been a very yeah. long time since I was there. But do, do they have any? significance in that yeah they they do have some good dna in them again highly fragmented because it's from a tanned hide but mm. still good like we, we we will be able to get genomes from those specimens for sure mm. yeah do you know it's I... also really cool in the adelaide museum is they have a few of the mummified remains of thylacines that had fallen into some of the caves on the mainland oh, of wow. australia ah. so one of the cool things about the Tassie tiger is it was all over mainland Australia. It went extinct here about 5,000 years ago, but and its last stronghold was on uh, Tasmania. But there's this really interesting now. We're trying to sequence that one 
Um, it's been sort of desiccated, so it's even in worse shape again. But because we've got really good genome resources now, we're hoping we can figure out what their diversity looked like even 5,000 years ago, which would be amazing. That'd be a, yeah, and that really would be. think about, yeah, reintroducing them back onto mainland Australia. Other predatory animals don't like having big predators around, so we have an enormous problem with feral cats in Australia mm. decimating our small marsupial species. But where there's dingoes, where there's another big uh, predator around, they won't go. They don't like it at all. And so we were thinking, you know, maybe you could even think about putting thylacines back on mainland and maybe they would help push cats out of regions because they definitely wouldn't like having a thylacine around in those in those areas. And the thylacine's much better in balance with the ecosystem here, obviously, than an introduced species like a cat. So yeah. there's some interesting things you could, you know, try and use for conservation. Obviously, that's a long way down the track. Mm. Um, if if this were to become a reality, uh, and we were we we were looking at a a a tomorrow morning where you successfully brought thylacines back, would zoos be used to house the initial population? I'm aware that uh, so me and Gareth we mm. we we come we we come from a zoo background, um, mm. and the zoos of the era that we've worked in are very different to the ones. The uh the last phylocene Benjamin, which funnily enough, yeah. that was a girl. Um, yeah, that's that's my phylocene weird fact. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 the the one that is in that that infamous black and white fo- uh, video uh, video footage. Yeah, even though we're big supporters of zoos, uh, now good zoos, yeah. good. I mean, that was nineteen thirty six. I know. I was going to say that yeah. we're we're very aware that back in the day, zoos let a lot of animals down, and the phylocene is probably the the um the benchmark for for how badly yeah. they were let down because it, it was it was human error, I think that uh that ended up or human um carelessness that that yeah. ended up ending that poor poor animal's life, but zoos are very different today so i was just wondering yeah if if the initial population might might be uh housed in zoos to begin with yeah we we partner with a lot of zoos uh in australia here for for doing all that conservation marsupial work because most of the zoos here run massive conservation and captive breeding programs for marsupial species particularly you know the really endangered most vulnerable Mm. ones where they will bring them in and they'll use some of these reproductive technologies that we're developing to help uh bolster bigger populations, hopefully down the track, also more genetically diverse populations that can then be released back into the wild. The zoo just here, Melbourne Zoo, and also Hillsville Sanctuary, which is not far from where I work, have massive breeding programs for Tasmanian devils. Uh, They're a species that almost went extinct because of the loss of the Tasmanian tiger. Um, And so they're one of those ones that was thrown out of balance and uh, nearly we nearly lost them, but they were brought into captivity. They're being bred up and they're now being released, released not only back in Tasmania, but also on the mainland as well, hopefully to establish populations here that can help protect against their their loss in Tasmania, which is really cool. But yeah, I think museums do, I mean, museums, zoos and museums play a big role Mm. in uh, these conservation programs now. And so it's it's very feasible that, yeah, when we're initially hand rearing them, breeding up populations, that that would be done under the care of a, of a zoo that would have, you know, really good expert facilities set up to do this sort of work. But the vision for this is always to rewild these animals. Like that's yeah, really good. You know, why we're doing it is to get these animals back into the wild. But there will be stages where this will be done through very large enclosed areas. Obviously, we wouldn't just let an animal 
run out across Tasmania <laughs> and hope for the best. Yeah. We would, you know, you would study it for really long times in progressively larger enclosures in the yeah. ecosystem of Tasmania, make sure it's having that positive benefit. But yeah, it all would stem from zoo into large outdoor enclosure, into bigger outdoor enclosure, and then eventual um, rewilding. I think I speak for Gareth as well when I say that that's exactly how zoos yeah. should function. We shouldn't be having yeah. things like meerkats and stuff. It, it, <laughs> I, I tell you a good model for it actually um, is, is ammo leopards. The way that they, that they're trying to conserve ammo leopards at the moment, the breeding program, the, the restricted public viewing, like they can view yeah. them, they can be educated by them, but there there is a certain level of in-house protection for them. And they end up like, yeah generation by generation being uh what's the word um upgraded to a bigger more wilder emulating enclosure until they end up in the amur river region in uh in russia so yeah i yeah it it uh, it, that'd be a really good model to follow yeah no i agree have have there been any have there been any any zoos that have very early sort of gone oh oh us please (laughs) no not yet I'm surprised. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I <laughs> thought there'd be a few that might just be going like, "Oh, go, go on." I mean, it would be it would be lovely and almost poetic to see uh, a zoo in Tasmania have them. I think if anywhere, if they were going to go anywhere to any zoo, I think somewhere in Tasmania would be sort of that brilliant, yeah, yeah. Sort of bringing it back we're around. With uh, Bunurong Wildlife Park, that does a huge. I mean, they they really are a, a marsupial rescue park. Mm-hmm. So all the animals that they have on display, there are ones that were brought in uh, that have been hit on the road or orphaned. Right. And they, they've been hand-reared. They release them all back into the wild. Only the ones they can't release into captivity remain there that people can go and see. So it is. It's one of these fantastic wildlife resources, zoos. And uh, they have, I would say, the world's foremost experts in hand-rearing joeics because they do it so often. And so, uh, you know, they're people we, we're talking with all the time because I think they would be a great partner for a lot of this work to really get them back into Tasmania, but also just their expertise in in raising marsupials from very small animals into healthy adults and then rewilding, like going back through that whole process. They're really expert across all of that. Hmm. So I I suspect the answer to this question is no, because of, based on the, the on on basically the early days and and the answers to the last couple of questions. But I think it's worth asking anyway. Um, it I was wondering if any uh, if a species breeding program had been discussed, uh, like a captive breeding program had been discussed uh, in preparation for for the phylocene's de-extinction, so that so that you can you can kind of get that healthy genetic reservoir going, ready for rewilding. Yeah, so, I mean, we're working on sequencing those 50 genomes so that we can actually get a really good snapshot of what the healthy population diversity looked like. So we can Mm -hmm. engineer that back in. Obviously, with any of this, you can't just create two animals and then hope for the best. Yeah. Um, But it's possible to engineer, you know, a lot of diversity. So maybe 100 or 200 animals worth of diversity into, say, 10 or 20 animals. You can actually incorporate all of that diversity into just a few. And actually... Make adding that diversity back in is is a walk in the park compared to the engineering that we're doing to turn a, a dunnart into a thylacine, right? So this is small stuff that can just give that that population its its healthy start that you would need. So yeah, we we discuss that all the time exactly about how many animals we would need, you know, what level of diversity we would need, and making sure that we get that that really healthy population established. 
That that is wow. insanely <laughs> similar to the. Yeah. If you you guys have you guys ever seen? It's really nerdy, and I'm really sorry to all our listeners. <laughs> have you guys ever seen Man of Steel? It's like the best Superman movie ever made. But yeah, it is. I agree. It's the Codex. The, it's such a good movie. Um, it's really underappreciated. Yeah. Anyway, that what you've just explained is how the crypto like Kalel has the Codex for every. All the genetic diversity left on Krypton is in Kellogg's yeah, yeah. DNA. Uh, I just that 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 popped the little nerd in me there. That I day. wondered. I wondered how you were going to bring that one around there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's me too, to... actually. Um, <laughs> so you obviously foresee a future with the thylacine back in the wild, uh, but do you think there will be, or do you do you uh, experience much resistance to the idea of the animal being back in the wild? Yeah, so, you know, there always there are some people who have been resistant to it. I think the main thing is when I really talk to them and explain the importance of the thylacine, I think almost everybody has changed their mind. I still haven't had, you know, anybody who just vehemently goes, you can't do this, unless they're coming from a place where they go, you're playing God and we just shouldn't be doing right. this sort of yeah. work. My argument to that always is, though, that we we play God all the time. We certainly play God when we wipe the thylacine off the face of the earth. So mm. I would like to think this is at least doing the the good God part if we're still playing God <laughs> to try and bring it back and put that animal back into the wild. So I really, you know, there's been resistance there. Often people also say, you know, this detracts money from conservation biology and we should be really focused on preserving the species we have left. And uh, again, my argument to that is that's exactly what we're doing. Like this is technologies that we need to preserve the species that we have left. But it has the added benefit that once we've refined all of those technologies, that we can also dip into the past and bring back some of these critical species that are really important in those ecosystems. So I think, you know, that's where I go. I, I urge people just to have an open mind and to think broadly about this, not just to go, no, this sounds terrible, we shouldn't do it, but to actually think of, the reasons behind why we need to do this and how important for our planet and biodiversity that we can access uh, lost diversity, whether that be entire species or just diversity that's lost that still exists in museum collections in some of those specimens that we might be able to bring back to make those populations more healthy. So I think it's very important to extinction science. Don't be afraid of it. And uh, I think it really will change the world moving forward. That's I mean, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, well, we know you've got to go. Um, sorry. No, 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 no. don't be absolutely sorry at all. Fine. We are absolutely yes. honoured to have you yeah. in the comments. I will, been... I usually I usually ask where people can find your your work online, but I will make sure that that information is, is shared for you on your behalf, okay? Right. Professor awesome. Andrew Pask, thank you so much for your time. This has been yes. absolutely wonderful. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Nice to make Any your day. acquaintance. See you guys. Have a good Bye. day. Bye. <laughs> Wow. Well, there you Incredible. go. Uh, he had to disappear for an eight o'clock meeting, which we, I mean, to be honest, we had a whole load of other questions. We could have probably bent his ear about for the we rest could of his have day. Talked phylicines for <laughs> years. Absolutely uh, fantastic interview. Thoroughly interesting. And I mean, I can't I, I can't wait. I'm putting my name down. Let's in fact, Aaron, let's let's just head to Tasmania now. Let's <laughs> let's just. Get get in on the ground floor on this, and we'll be the first Tasmanian tiger keepers. You know, I think that's I think that's a good enough aim to go for, don't you? Uh, I've I've always wanted to to move to Australia anyway, so <laughs> it's not a bad place. <laughs> I have to say, 
um in looking up the um in looking doing the research for this uh for, for this interview uh it's first time i i wish i did something different for university <laughs> well it's yeah it's one of those times i i think i i well i wish i'd have gone to university although i think if i'd have gone to university i'd have ended up going into paleontology so uh, it would have been drastically different in a lot of ways, but um, I know I know what you mean. It's one of those things you look back and go, "Oh, we should have done that different or this different." But um, well, I mean, we're doing this, you know. Yeah, this, this, is is good, this is good. This is good. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but that, uh, yeah, that was absolutely fantastic. It was. Um, um, uh, the, our listeners don't know this, Gareth, because uh, well, originally you weren't even supposed to know this. Um, yeah. I uh, I actually arranged this. For for your birthday but i i couldn't make Months it work ago. in time yeah it was in august so this is actually a belated birthday present to our resident thylacine fanatic uh <laughs> gareth whose birthday it was in august so uh yeah very happy belated birthday to you um well thank you thank I, you very I, much that was a really good interview as well it, yeah. it certainly i mean we've been I, i'm not lying or just trying to butter people up when i say we've been blessed with blessed i hate that word um i don't hate that word very strong word hate i i don't like that word much uh we've been incredibly fortunate and lucky that people have taken the time on our little podcast to come and and give us their time um and we have had some really fun ones some really informative ones we've not a single person that has come on this podcast has not been absolutely passionate about what it is that they do and what they're talking about but that one was just that that one was on another level. That was really fun, really Definitely. informative, super passionate, and and inspiring. And like I say, his work uh, changed my mind completely on the de-extinction thing. I'm still a little bit conservative about how we use this power. I am still. This might be a bit of an extreme view, uh, especially as everybody else in the world seems to be worried about AI. But I actually <laughs> think that genetic power is the next technology that is going to change the world certainly a big societal uh shift on a global scale but you're skirting around going into ian malcolm here you know but his work on the thylacine um and his passion that i've heard in all the podcasts and stuff and the 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 his work that I've read up on has completely changed my mind. It's, it's Mm. fantastic. When instead of a robot uprising, we have the thylacine uprising. I, for one, welcome our new thylacine overlords. But yeah, I I think uh, it's, it's something that obviously there are going to people be people who try and abuse any kind of power that's uh, created for ill-gotten gains, 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 (laughs) ill-gotten gains. Uh, But I, I think, that this is is technology being used for the greater good definitely definitely yeah before we finish this off um i said i tell you where you can find the work and 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 the research and everything that's going on with the thylacine uh, genomic uh restoration um if you head over to tiger lab that's t i g r l a b dot science dot uni mel b edu.au or just type in thylacine integrated genomic restoration research lab into google that will bring up the website for you and it's got their research on it it's got how to get involved or donate 
It's got everything you want to know about phylacenes and about the uh, about the team uh, and and any news that that they they're involved in. So head on over to yeah, head on over to uh, Phylacene Integrated Genomic Restoration Research Lab, and you can follow Andrew Pask, Professor Andrew Pask's uh, work there. Yeah, and I think we'll share a link to that on our usual social media pages. Absolutely. So shall we launch into our emails to finish things out? Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Second. Yeah. Um, should we? We don't really need to do. I'm tempted to say we do a question for this week, which is if you could bring any extinct animal back. But at the same time, I we, I know we've done that question. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Um, yeah, we've done that question, haven't we? Um. Yeah, we've done that question. I would, I would not do that one, or at least I'd leave it for, for a little. You know what? Let's not time. bother with a question for this week. Let's let's just go for the. I have a question for you though. Okay, all right. Yeah, I've got right. I've got a question let's, for you. Let's let's. Uh, in fact, didn't you say there was an email question as well? Um, I don't remember. Give me a sec. I might have written one down. All right. Well, you have a look. I will. I'll do the spiel, the intro bit. Right. Well, that was a absolutely fantastic interview. Uh, we're now into our, our mailbag for this week. Uh, we're going to skip doing uh, a question because I think it would just detract from the uh, the episode itself. And and also the, the question which you would probably want to ask at this point is what animal would you want de-extincted or unextincted? De-extincted? extincted um but i believe we've already done that as the question so uh it would just be going over the same ground so we're going to skip the uh, the question for you this week as it is we've got our fights of uh the different animals underway at the moment um they're mm. going up on our our facebook page uh every two days there's going to be quite a few of them i made the sort of the bracketing system for that and it was so much it took up an entire uh like paint document to be able to even get them <laughs> to scale on there to all fit. So they're on there. They'll be going up in, in sort of uh, two, uh, four creature matchups. So by the end of each one, we should have two creatures that have won. Um, I can tell you that our, so far our winners are, Oh, actually by the time this comes out, it'll be totally pointless, but, but I'll just, I'll just say it anyway. Um, At the time of recording, you could say. Yeah. At the time of recording for this particular episode, um, it looks as follows. The painted dog, Aaron, you'll be glad to know, has uh, triumphed over Deprotodon. Hey! Lystrosaurus has beaten out Red Fox. So those two are Interesting. And from the first lot, which was um, between uh, Calicotherium and Cassowary, Calicotherium took the lead. I thought Cassowary was a shoe-in for beating that. I thought Cassowary was a shoe-in as well. And between Inos Transivia, um, as well as the Portuguese Man of War, the Portuguese Man of War stung <laughs> its way to victory. Last time we did one of these, none of my animals got through anything. So I'm so happy that I have two species in the race you've, still. You've wiped the board with me. Although my lystrosaur has gone through. So I, I'm I can really at least... impressed that the lystrosaur took the red fox. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. feel free to uh, to cast your vote on those because 
well, one vote can definitely make the difference. And I think it did with the cassowary and the calicotherium. Uh, that that's how that one came out. Uh, when it comes to creature features and, and upcoming ones, uh, in fact, Andrew will have sent us his uh, pick for his creature feature, uh, as we've uh, now started doing with all our interview guests. But the other way that you can get your own creature feature put on the show is become one of our Patreons, where uh, you can, uh, at uh, our second tier, you can suggest a creature feature for us every month to put forward. Um to put into rotation uh, just like some of these wonderful patreons have done by supporting us uh, financially Aaron name our patrons and what voice are you doing this week well this week um as you as you're aware Gareth I've uh, I'm I've had a bit of a hard week so I have already picked up my voice for next week when my throat is a little bit better but <laughs> for now I'm just going to read you read out the names in uh in in um in uh, in my normal voice um oh. i know i'm 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 wimping out but i have had a really hard week and on that note can i just just shout out the local hospital and the nhs because they uh, have been fantastic with my family this week um so yeah i just wanted to say that back on topic as gareth said we like to uh, every week shout out your names i'm sorry that i won't be doing it in a uh, in a novel or funny or entertaining voice this week um but i'll make it up to you next week uh so we'd like to shout out chelsea mckee connie p jen greenhall and fogtober you guys rock if it wasn't for you we wouldn't be able to do things like the recording we did uh the the other week in uh, for the for the new year's episode and we also wouldn't be able to do things that we're planning to do um in the in the future so Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. The, the, your support is amazing. A bit, a bit more funding, and we might be able to come up with our own genetics laboratory where we'll we'll start de-extincting other animals. I would <laughs> settle for being able to use Zoom for longer than forty minutes every time we record. Wow, <laughs> yeah, that's. I think I think the genetics lab might be a more doable task than that, <laughs> but uh, we shall see. Um, but yes, there are many ways that you can support us. Uh, they have done that financially. You can help us out in the most simple way possible by uh, liking, subscribing, telling people who you know, liking us on social media, interacting with us on social media. It all helps out a fantastic amount um, by getting us out there and, and letting people know that we exist. So uh, podcasts die, uh, live and die on word of, of mouth. There's... Uh, I don't think there's any de-extincting uh, needing involved for us, um, but it your support literally means everything. So a big thank you to everyone who does anything like that uh, at any point with uh, with what we put out. So, yeah. So that pretty much brings us to the end of this very fascinating episode uh, that we've been able to... Uh, uh, cobble together so a massive thank you to professor andrew pask for for coming on uh and uh sharing with us um his well absolutely uh obviously undying passion for a fascinating creature infectious um, passion yeah definitely yeah um i don't think there's there's any doubting whether he he is totally and utterly dedicated to uh to doing this so um Apart from that, uh, Aaron, thank you for coming along as per usual. Thank you for setting this all up and getting everything ready to go. 
Thank you for having me, Gareth. Thank you to all of our listeners for continuing to listen. Thanks again to our amazing Patreon supporters. And again, thank you to Professor Andrew Pask for giving up your time, um, especially right before a meeting. And if it wasn't caught by anyone, he's in, he's at the University of Melbourne. And, and he had so a slight had to, accent, you could just tell. He, <laughs> he was doing this at seven o'clock in the morning for us all. So, yeah, the, the, the gratitude of this yeah. of this podcast to, to everybody that helps us out, from the listeners, through the patrons, to our guests, to our families at home um who who look after our little ones whilst we whilst we do this uh there is no end to the gratitude none of this would be um possible without you guys and what a yeah. what a cracking what a cracking episode mm, definitely and uh, a big thank you to you at home for listening and we'll see you next time here in the natural history cupboard bye adios so gareth yes you de-extincted yourself no i didn't <laughs> <laughs> can't prove anything <laughs> <laughs>